Welcome to The Vergecast, the flagship podcast of Glassholes. I'm your friend David Pierce, and I am currently in my, I don't know, we call it the utility room, but it's the room with like my washer and the furnace, and also it's like where we keep all of our extra paper towels. Whatever you call that room, that's where I am. I just finished my latest home improvement project, which was to replace a bunch of doorknobs. Over the course of the last two years since we bought a house, I've gone from like, I can put together Ikea furniture and feel unnecessarily proud of myself for a week level handy to I can watch a bunch of YouTube videos about that and probably figure out how to take it apart and out of the wall and put it back together and back in the wall again. Feels like big progress. I'm not really sure it's actually all that big progress. But anyway, I just replaced a bunch of doorknobs, which I truly cannot recommend enough as a project to give you more pleasure than it was work. Like now, every time I hold on to that doorknob, I'm like, I did this, even though it was like unscrewing four screws and screwing four screws back in again. And by the way, if you have more ideas for home improvement projects that are very little work and make you feel very proud of yourself for a long time, please send them my way. I'd love to hear all about them. Anyway, we have an awesome show coming up for you today. We're going to talk about the right to repair fight that has happened in California. There's a new law there that I actually think is a big deal for the whole way that we buy and repair and use our electronics. We're also going to talk about the new smart glasses from Meta and Ray-Ban. I think these are fascinating. You've heard me talk about why I think smart glasses are interesting really for the last few weeks since Amazon launched the new Echo Frames and Meta has these new smart glasses. This is just a device category I find totally fascinating. Vsong has been reviewing them for us. We're going to talk to her and get the whole rundown. And of course, we're going to get to the VergeCats hotline. We have a fun one today, which is a question I have also had. All that is coming up in just a second. But first, I just realized all of the batteries to my drill are now dead because I don't use this thing enough and should probably charge it more often. So I'm going to go plug a bunch of stuff in and then we're going to get to it. This is The Vergecast. See you in a sec. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with global dining access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome back. Let's talk about glasses first, because like I said, I'm totally fascinated by this whole category. Are smart glasses the future? Are they nothing? I don't know. But I do know this. Nobody is pushing the idea of smart glasses harder than Meta right now. I really think that Meta believes that smart glasses, something that looks like a pair of glasses but is just absolutely loaded with technology, is the future in a very real way. Its new smart glasses, which it made in partnership with Ray-Ban, just went on sale. They start at $299. They look pretty nice. They are very much not that tech-filled future of everything. But Meta says they're vastly better than the last model, the stories, for everything from taking phone calls to taking video. The Verge's Victoria Song has the smart glasses, and she's been wearing them all over New York for the last few days. So I called her up to see what life is like as a smart glasses wearer in 2023. 
V, welcome back. Hello. The listeners should know that what happened when we got on this call to do this was you showed up wearing the smart glasses and immediately took them off, which on the one hand is like you're you're sitting inside of your house wearing sunglasses, which is bad news, but also like says something about the state of smart glasses that you could only handle being on camera with them on for about eight seconds before it all fell apart. Well, a lot of this was because, you know, it's sunglasses and I'm indoors and my computer screen is not so blinding that I need that. And my vision is not good at all. So this is like, I'm going to blame Meta for sending me the sunglasses version instead of the one with clear lenses or transition lenses. That's fair. But it kind of, it does kind of get to the issue of this whole smart glasses, smart sunglasses divide. I just had these on so I could take a tiny little clip because we're going to do a social video like day in the life. And this is part of my day in the life. So that that was it. That's all. I love that for you. So let's start with big feelings about smart glasses. So you've had these things for several days now. You've been like running around using them in your real life, trying to like immerse yourself in smart glasses life as much as you can in order to do this review really well. What have you found about like how the world and the idea of smart glasses interact? I feel like we're in a weird middle because, you know, I've been using smart glasses for years. I've used several iterations of these audio smart glasses before. And some of the ones that, you know, were more full featured, like having a secondary display in your eyes. And usually it's just, you know, they're fine up until you find the friction in your daily life where you're just like, okay, it's just too much work to use these versus my phone versus my normal pair of glasses. So I will say that with these, that friction, it takes longer to get there. There are reasons why you would want to put it on your face. Whereas in the past, I've always been like, no, why, why would I reach for the smart one? unless I have a very specific instance. But I've used a bunch in my career, and uh, I have to say that these are the ones that have thus far kind of fit into my life the best, though there are a lot of a lot of caveats to that, like a lot of like asterisk, 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 asterisk. Yeah, and let's, I want to get to those in a minute, but like the thing that jumps out to me the most, and I got a brief demo of this before the launch, where we just kind of got to like, try them on on like the roof of a building in New York and play with them for a few minutes. And the thing that jumped out to me the most was just that they look like sunglasses, which is such a stupid, obvious thing to say. But like, we've been talking about these devices for a long time. And like you said, you've, we've tried the Bose ones and Amazon has the Echo Frames, which it's also sort of pushing in the looks more like glasses realm. But like, Meta's working with Ray-Ban here. And I'm even looking at the ones sitting on your head right now. And like, if I didn't look for a long time, which no one is going to, people don't like really spend a lot of time staring at other people's glasses. They just look like glasses. And that strikes me as like very, very important. They're like easily the most stylish smart glasses I've seen. Has that been your experience so far? Uh, they're pretty on par, I think, with like the Bose Soprano, which is like the the nicer looking version okay. of the Bose Tempo, the non-jabroni version. Um, the technical term, the non-jabroni version. The, the non-jabroni version. Do I look like a jabroni? Like that's one of the the main criteria I grade these. It's a good technology test, actually, for like all wearables, <laughs> like the, the jabroni factor, like one to 10. I feel like that's a good one. So these are very not jabroni-like, but... What I will say is most consumer smart glasses, they go for the very boxy Warby Parker Wayfair yep. 
vibe because that's like, I think that's what they've kind of identified as the most universally flattering, although it's still not flattering for everyone, the most universally flattering form factor that they can go with. And it was a very smart choice for Meta to team up with Ray-Ban or Esser Luxottica, their parent company, because, you know, Ray-Bans, everyone finds them to be like, even if you don't like them, they're kind of iconic Mm -hmm. in terms of fashion. So yeah, these are probably in the top two of best looking uh, audio slash camera sunglasses I've ever worn. Uh, Low bar, since we're all kind of going for the same vibe. But what I will say is you have so many more style options with this than you do with others. So that I think is a huge underrated plus with these glasses because, you know, we don't talk about it enough in terms of wearables because we're geeky people. We love to talk about the specs and everything like that, but how they look and the design is such an integral and crucial part of smart glasses more so than any other piece of wearable technology because it's on your face. Yeah. And we are a vain creature. We are vain peoples. Like if I put something on my face, it better look good. I don't want to look like a dweebus. Like I, (laughs) this is the moneymaker, right? This is how people see us. This is how people perceive us. No one's going to wear these things if they're like, I look like the kid from a Christmas story or like, you know, the the kid who shoots his eye out with the BB gun. No one wants to look like that. No one wants to look like a really dorky person. You want to look good. You want to look um, Kingsman, Eggsy in a, in a nice little suit wearing his dapper little smart glasses. That's what you want. Dude, I have spent so many years now telling people that like, forget Ready Player One, forget Minority Report, forget her, Kingsman is the future of technology that we should all hope for. Like, just look at that movie and that's that's what I want. I want to look like that. I want green avatars of people sitting around a table while we have a meeting. Like, give me Kingsman or give me nothing. I could not agree with you more. There are parts of like actually where I was testing these where I was like, oh shit, I'm Eggsy. Uh, <laughs> from the second movie, because there is a, oh crap, I got these smart glasses playing music. Okay, I have to take them off now. <laughs> I touched them accidentally. But Kingsman, he, in the second movie, he's at like a dinner and he's just taking pictures and recording things. And I really felt like that this time around because that's what I was doing on my commute one day. And I felt like such a spy, like an incognito. I was like, oh my God, I'm taking pictures and people don't know. Right. It's it's totally like freaky. And they have these little um, LEDs that are on the outside that are supposed to signal when you're taking a video and when you're taking a photo. And what I found is that it works indoors, especially if you're an ethical person and you're like, hey, I have this device and I'm going to do these things with it. But when I'm outside, dubious as to whether you can see it easily. And it requires like looking at you while you do it, which most of the time, again, no one is. I'm glad you brought that up. And I like I start with that because like not only do I think the way that it looks is important to the way it works, I think it's the whole thing. Right. And I think we've, we've talked about it like, oh, you have to have cool technology and they have to look cool. No, no, no. If it doesn't look cool, none of the rest of it matters. Right. Like, I think that's what we learned from Google Glass. That's what we're learning with the VR headsets. Like. If you don't have something that is at least inoffensive that no one is going to look at you when you walk by on the street, like that's the baseline. The better part of it is you get to the like, you know, I feel like at where Apple got with like the wired headsets back in the day where they could just do a silhouette and you saw nothing but the white wire and you knew exactly what it was and you've like made something iconic. That's 
what you want with all this. But none of it matters if it doesn't look cool. No one's going to wear these things, especially on their face, if you can't make them fashionable and stylish and make people actually want to wear them, even features aside. And the good news is, I think belatedly everyone now knows that because of the way that Google Glass went. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the road all of these are on. But you brought up the camera. And I think the two reason these things exist is one for the sort of audio stuff, which I think is interesting, making calls, playing music, that kind of thing, and the camera. And Meta obviously made a big deal about the camera. It's where they put in a lot of the engineering work. You can do the live streaming, all that stuff. We have not had good luck with face cameras in the past being like good cameras that you actually take videos and photos you want to do things with. How did these turn out? How did, how did, how do you feel? Surprisingly good. Really? Like, to the point where you're angry because the original Ray-Ban stories looked like potato vision. Anything you took a picture on, it kind of looked like a potato, right? Yeah. Like there's just nothing you could do about it. It's fuzzy. It looks like circa 2010 level phone camera. This, I think you could get away with saying, oh, an iPhone took this photo. Like it's wow. that good. There's caveats. Again, like... There's a little fisheye distortion going on with everything you take, and you really can't think about it until you've worn it, but there's a real POV factor to all the photos and videos that you take with this. So if you're on a phone, you can see what you're filming. You know when you're off kilter. You know like to kind of just micro adjust while you're doing things. Yeah, there, that's not necessarily what you're going to be thinking about when you have glasses because you're not seeing the footage as it's being taken in real time. So there's a lot of photos that I took where I'm like, oh, I'm doing the puppy dog tilt where my <laughs> head is like tilted to a side because I'm looking at something. And that was actually a behavior I didn't know I did until I was like re-looking at my footage. I was like, oh, I, I tilt my head a lot when I'm looking at things or when I'm trying to suss things out. The other stuff is like, I have curtain bangs, which are, you know, if you don't know fashion, curtain bangs are face length framing bangs. I have a lot of ruined photos of my cats because there's just hair like obscuring part of their cute face. So now I have to do this thing where it's like when I put these glasses, the new behavior is to swoosh back my bangs so that they don't ruin any footage. And that's not something I ever thought about before or when I'm walking and taking video and I'm talking with someone like it was very funny watching this footage back because you can just see me look straight every so often while my partner was talking sometimes at like the most crucial interesting parts because what I'm doing is trying not to fall flat on my face I'm trying to see where I'm going I'm not trying to walk into a tree like Looney Tunes style so there's just kind of a real found footage quality to the videos that I've taken thus far. And it's a muscle memory that you have to learn. You have to retrain yourself entirely to film in this context. But it's still like in terms of video quality and photo quality, you could share it very easily and no one would know that it was taken on a potato camera. It's shareable. It's share ready, which is pretty freaky when you think about it. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about taking photos kind of at your eye level, which is essentially where the cameras are, right? They're kind of like just above and outside your eyes, right? As you're wearing the glasses. That seems like it would be very natural. It takes a picture of what you're looking at. But you, you never really think about all the work your brain is doing when you're looking at something that the camera can't then do to do things like solve for head tilt. Like your your brain doesn't think 
the world goes askew every time you tilt your head to look at something, but your camera is sure going to. And the thing where you can't look down because it's going to screw up your shot. Like in a way, it seems like we sort of all understand the like language of how to take a phone photo now. And it seems like doing it without any of that guidance or help or sort of dynamic feedback would be much harder. Like if you find yourself taking pictures you thought were going to be good at the moment that turned out to be bad just because of the like mechanics of how you shot it. Like if you had stood there and taken a picture with an equivalently good phone camera, would it have turned out better than what you got out of your glasses? Absolutely. So many, I would actually say like the majority of my first day or two of just taking photos, a lot of them ended up being like no good. Cause I would look at like what came out and be like, oh, the quality is really impressive. Especially I was impressed by the low light, but like, oh, the, the quality is impressive, but I can't use this because it looks like one, I really love a Dutch angle, which I don't, which <laughs> because my head is tilting. But also there's things like movement. I guess the big sell is that when you're on the go and you see something like, oh, your cat is doing something really cute and you just want to like get it real quick. Well, you actually have to be quite still. You have to stand still and you have to like click it and you can't move while you do it. Mm. Otherwise you're just going to get, or unless this is what you want, a very blurred motion shot. Uh, So a lot of the shots that I took on my first walk, I couldn't actually see what I was taking a photo of well, because I was like, oh, that's a beautiful shot of the Queensboro Bridge and it's blurry. Right. Or that's a car that I think my partner would love to know what it is. It's yellow and sporty and I don't know what cars are. So Oh, well, I can't see the logo now because it's a little blurry. Like there was a lot of that going on. So once you're aware of it, you can just kind of adjust and be like, oh, if I'm going to take a picture, I need to stand still, click, wait for the sound and then move on. So it's a little bit of learning how to work with the device in that respect. But the difference is, is that if you do do that, the result of what you're going to get is a lot better than what we've seen so far in this category. So it's sort of like a, it's sort of a noticeable step in terms of progression forward. So I was, I was quite like shocked. And at the same time, like, oh, this is how I'm going to have to adjust to use this properly. Yeah. That kind of makes it make sense why all of Meta's marketing material for this is like, put on the glasses, start a video and then sit down and play drums or look down while you use your hands to make something like there's a very sort of specific moment for it. Like I'm sitting on the couch and my kid over there does something interesting. Like that's, that's a moment for it. Whereas I think a lot of the sort of run and gun stuff phones are really good for these might not be, despite the fact that it seems like they would be because they're on your face. It's just a really interesting, like tone shift in what these things are actually for versus what it seems like they ought to be for because they're on your face. Yeah. Like I will say that you can get some footage that you could never get with your phone. Like, you know, anyone who's taken a picture of a kid or an animal before knows that they know what a phone is, right? They change their behavior as soon as the phone comes out. This, you can like just click a little button and I got some really cute footage of my kitten just yawning and making biscuits that he would have not done if I had my phone out because he'd be like, oh, phone time for a snack, chomp, chomp on the phone camera. But he's not going to do that because I have my glasses on. Like those are instances where you're like, oh man, this is so cool. And for me, just like, this is very, very specific to smartwatch reviewers only. The next time the video team asked me to take a social video of myself 
putting on a watch. Hallelujah. Because do you know how hard it is to hold a phone and prop that up and then put on a watch? It's, it's, it's a two handed job. So anytime you want to take like hands free phone footage, it's not every instance, but depending on who you are, there may be a ton of instances where that's really cool. Like maybe you're a musician and you want to like film yourself playing piano. Like, wow, you can do that now instead of having to wear a GoPro on your face. That That's what it is. Like instances where you would be like, man, if only I could stick a phone on my head or a GoPro on my head, this does a really good job of replacing that, I think. No, I think that that's really interesting. I, I remember, I think it was Anthony Bourdain a bunch of years ago talked about how much it changed the kind of show he was able to make when he started using iPhones instead of big giant TV cameras. Just like the vibe in the room is different when you have these phones that people are used to being filmed on and kind of understand what they are as opposed to like big ass shoulder mounted cameras. And I feel like there's a world in which the smart glasses kind of go the same way where it's like it just you're able to feel more intimate and literally get places and shots you couldn't with any other device because there is now nothing between you and the subject. It's very social oriented. It's not like, oh, I'm going to do a YouTube video movie shot on these glasses. It's very like for your social media. There's like things built within the the MetaView app that make it easy to share to Instagram or like WhatsApp, you know, all of Meta's services. But it's just very easy to make that transition. And like, I don't live stream, but I have like tried out the live stream kind of connectivity. It's freaky how fast it it just recognizes that I've got a pair of these paired. Like I just pull up Instagram reels and it can see that it's there. And you just like double tap to switch between cameras, right? That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You just, and like, I saw that and I was like, wow, there's just a type of content creator that's going to love doing that. That's not me. But also, you know, it's kind of weird to kind of test that because you're going live in a live stream and then people are just going to have questions. So that's not a thing I've been able to really explore yet. But just having it there, being able to recognize it without me having to go through a really long setup process, that was like, ooh, that's interesting. Where you come up against a wall of like, okay, that's not how people are going to use this is who who really is using Instagram reels for this type of content? It's TikTok. TikTokers are the ones who are going to want this type of like live stream capability built within the glasses. And it's kind of limited to reels. So that feels like arbitrary ecosystem guarding when you consider like If you didn't do that, if you worked with TikTok to make it a compatible thing, this would like sell like hotcakes immediately. So, I mean, I'm not one tiny bit surprised that Meta is doing that, but it also makes me hope that somebody else comes out and says like, we are the content agnostic one, right? And it's like, we you can, if you could share as easily to like shorts and TikTok and reels and go live on Twitch and YouTube and TikTok and wherever else, that becomes a pretty cool creator tool in a way that there really isn't anything other than phones right now that do that. And I think that could be very cool. But I, I frankly, I would have been shocked if Meta had opened this stuff up more than it has. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like it makes sense. Like people going to put their ecosystems first always. It's just one of those things where you're like, yeah, but that's not the reality of how content creators work. So that's just one of those things where it's like, maybe down the line, we'll see that happen. Maybe Meta wants to be 
the one who makes that particular hardware for everyone to use. So, you know, I get it. If I know anything, it's that someone in the EU is already writing smart glasses interoperability rules. So it's <laughs> it's it's going to happen. What about the the like headphone replacement piece of this? I think one of the reasons I'm the most excited about these is for audio and calls and microphone stuff. How do these do? So I think you sound great when you wear them and you take videos. Like there is a new um, microphone in the nose. Mm. And I thought that was kind of silly at first, but you do really sound a lot more present and clear. It's a really smart place to put a microphone, actually. I had not thought about it until they explained it, but like that is such a close place to your mouth. And it's such a like they can just plane it straight downwards. Like it's very clever. I was I had high hopes for it. So I'm glad it works. I sound so clear in all the videos I took, even if there was wind, out, wind outside. That's great. And you you sound more like the narrator when you do it that way, mm. just because it does record in stereo. So when you put it on and you listen to the videos that you took, you do sound like the main character of your video. Oh, everyone's going to know I'm recording because I'm going to be like swooping my bangs to the side. It does, and it does it in stereo. Oh, wait, so like, wait, wait. when you listen to it, test. you can... Like, how is the... Victoria sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so like, recording. I... like, you can tell that you are the narrator and that you are talking and that if you are talking to someone else, they're over there. Right. Like, you can tell that, which I thought was, like, a very subtle touch. But, you know, um, I wore it on the very loud New York subway and on a tram and in various forms of public transit. They're quite loud, on these forms of public transit, depending on what train line you take. And like on the four or five, I could listen and I could drown everybody out. But if you live in New York, you know the four or five is a fancy train. It's well-maintained. I also took the NRW and it was it was a lot harder to like listen to my music in that with everything just screeching and being loud. So it, it really depends on the area you're in. I didn't have anyone yelling at me like, turn down your audio leakage. So on, the, on that respect, no one yelled at me. So it can be really hard to hear other people, though, when you crank it up really loud. But um, as far as that goes, it's very similar to other smart glasses with audio components. I do think it has good sound quality. Is it the best sound quality for listening to the bass-heavy tracks of XO? Not really. In-ear is always going to be better than that, but it's good enough for my runs. Is it good enough for a race? No, I wouldn't take it in a race because in the race, they blare their own music and that makes for a bad time if you're very music dependent like I am. So that's just kind of how it works there. So hit me with some of the caveats. What sucks about these things? Like, Were there specific things that drove you nuts about the way that they work? Battery life, mm. you know, battery life, is, it is what they say it is. It's just, you know, I have bad eyes. I need a vision, like, help all the time. I need either glasses or my contacts. In terms of these, you know, if they run out of battery while I'm going about my full day trying to use these as my main driver, that's annoying to charge my main seeking device. You can't really use this as your sole pair of glasses. You are going to need a backup pair because this charges within a case. So you can't even like plug yourself into a wire while you're working and have that work. Now you have to plug it into the, to the eyeglass case. So you, you can't just use this as your sole pair of glasses. And if you get it as uh, sunglasses, you really have to think about what situations you're going to be using this in. If you want to be indoors, it's really not going to work for you. And then if like me, you have really, really terrible vision, there's a limit as to what 
prescription glass Ray-Ban says they support. It's negative six to plus four. I fall outside of that. That really sucks for me. It means I have to keep wearing contacts with these and that makes life kind of difficult to manage because, you know, the thing I think we don't really talk about with smart glasses is that glasses are a medical device. People need them to see and you need to see at all times. So when you add a charging battery component to that, you're saying that this can't be your your main glasses all the time. You need a backup. And that's very expensive in the United States, not in Korea, which is why my family all goes to Korea for glasses. But you're asking people to spend like 400 to 700 just to have two pairs of these at any given point in time, which, you know, I don't I don't love that. I think that's a major barrier. Yeah. This is why transition lenses are the future. I know we were on a few episodes ago and Neil, I talked a lot of crap about transition lenses and the number of people who have told us that actually transition lenses are good. I support you. You are my people. And I'm sure my dad was one of them. They are absolutely necessary for smart glasses. I don't think the sunglasses, if you want to wear them in your daily life, sunglasses are not an option. But if you want to go outside and not have your eyeballs burn off if, because, you know, eye health is important and UV rays are damaging, then you can't really have the clear glasses all the time. So you really do need transitions if you want these glasses to be on you at all times and to have a camera at all times. So it seems like we're not all the way there. We haven't sort of fully solved these problems. There's a lot of interesting like software stuff left to do, especially I think in the camera. But it does sound like Meta has probably made the most convincing case yet that like there's something here that the camera can be good. The audio stuff can work. They're working on a bunch of AR stuff that I think is going to get more interesting over time. But it's like Meta wants the gadget of the future to look a lot like the thing that you're wearing on your head right now, right? Like it's a huge amount of technological work to get there. But I think I'm at least, you know, 1% more convinced than I was before these that that's plausible. Yeah. So what I'm going to say is I have tested a lot of smart glasses in the past and I've been made fun of consistently and constantly while I wear them. This is the first time where, you know, I've had people go like, oh, hell no, this is a privacy nightmare. Get away from me. But I've had way more people go like, oh, my God, that's so cool. I'm buying them. Where do I pre-order? And that, I think, is huge because I'll be I'll be real. My husband is the biggest V humble he keeps me humble yeah. because he's always like, that looks stupid. That's <laughs> dumb. Why would anyone have that? Uh-huh. Why do you wear five watches at a time? Yeah. Yeah. I have to argue my thesis, but this is the first like pair of smart glasses that I've ever worn that they've gone. Holy crap. I'm going to order my own pair. They're like, they are waiting to order these. And so they can have their prescription and they're like super excited about it. That's so weird to me. One Alex Kranz had a field day at the office, stealing them from me, taking the world's blurriest photos, just running around. They're so bad. They're so bad. But she ran around the office with these like a child. <laughs> like, oh, my God, I'm going to buy a pair. These are so cool. And it was just like, oh, my God. I've never seen someone that excited about a pair of smart glasses I've ever tested in my life. That's something to me, you know. Alex Cran's taking bad pictures is the first sign of any any good gadget category. Yeah, though, oh my God, just so many nostril shots <laughs> on my phone. All right, V, thank you. I want to talk about these more because the, the Echo Frames are coming out. There's more to do. I think this is like the next 
phase of these I think is going to be really interesting. So we're going to have to we're going to have to keep in touch on on all the smart glasses stuff. Absolutely. We got to make the eggsy spy dream a reality. Please. From from your mouth to God's ears. All right, we got to take a break, but then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about right to repair. V, thank you. We'll be right back. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for the podcast comes from Hims. Look, we all need help, but for some of us guys, it can be a real challenge to be so vulnerable. There are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash verge. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash verge for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash verge. Prescription to require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. All right, we're back. Before we get to our next segment, actually, one more quick thing on smart glasses. One thing that's not on the Meta smart glasses, at least not yet, is augmented reality. When Meta launched these glasses a few weeks ago, Mark Zuckerberg said that in a software update next year, the glasses will turn multimodal. That's the word he used. Here's the way he described how it'll work. So the glasses are going to be able to understand what you're looking at when you ask them questions. So if you want to know what the building is that you're standing in front of, or if you want to translate a sign that's in front of you to know what it's saying, um, or if you need help fixing this sad, leaky faucet. You can basically just talk to Meta AI and look at it, and it'll walk you through it step-by-step how to do it. So, you know, I I think that smart glasses are going to be an important platform for the future. You know, not only because they're the natural way to put holograms in the world so we can put digital objects, you know, in our physical space, but also because if you think about it, smart glasses are the ideal form factor for you to let an AI assistant see what you're seeing and hear what you're hearing. The smart glasses obviously don't have a screen, so they'll use your phone as the display for all that stuff. It's basically a companion to your glasses. I actually think that's super clever and a smart way to do AR glasses before it's possible to put all the hardware and software we're going to need into a decent looking pair of glasses. But the race to watch out for is between that approach and the one taken by a company like Xreal, which used to be called Nreal. You might have heard of it back then, but is now called Xreal for reasons I don't totally understand. Doesn't really matter. I've been toying around with Xreal's latest glasses. They're called the Air, and they're essentially the opposite of the Meta Smart glasses. They're not smart at all, but they do have a display. Right now, they're basically a projector on your face. You can plug them into your phone or your game console and see your video on a big virtual screen in front of your eyes. You can plug them into your computer and use them for virtual desktops. They don't 
do much of anything by themselves. They're just a screen you can put on your face. They're not the most stylish glasses. They have displays underneath each lens, so they're big and bulky, but they work pretty well, actually, and I've really enjoyed using them for watching shows that I would otherwise stare at on the tiny screen on my phone or even playing games. I plugged mine into my Switch and I've been using it that way. It's very cool. So that's really the battle, I think. Can someone like Xreal add the smarts and the looks faster than Meta can figure out how to get a display into these glasses? I don't know who I'd bet on there. I think probably Meta, but we'll see. And in the meantime, which of those approaches is actually useful to the most people? Is it Meta's AI and camera thing, or is it having a display on your face? I don't know, but I am absolutely convinced that Meta in particular is ready to see this all the way through. Alex Heath on our team has done some really good reporting on the roadmap. The roadmap is long. Meta is in this for the long haul. It's going to be super interesting to watch, especially over the next couple of years as everybody tries to figure out what anybody actually wants from these classes. Anyway, sorry, brief diversion. Let's get to the next segment. Last week, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a bill called the Right to Repair Act, which is pretty much what it sounds like. It makes it official that gadgets should be repairable. But it does so in some important, specific ways. Under the law, for any electronic made and sold after July 1st, 2021, and costing more than $50, the manufacturer of that device has to make tools, parts, software, and documentation available for people who want to repair those devices. Some of these devices you'll be able to repair yourself, others you'll take to a repair shop, and those repair shops, this is important, will be far more equipped and enabled to actually help you than before. This law is a huge win for the right to repair movement, which has been steadily fighting for laws like this all over the U.S. and around the world. So to help figure out what it means and what it means for how we buy and use and fix our electronics, I grabbed two people who know very well. The Verge of Sean Hollister and iFixit CEO Kyle Weens. Sean Hollister, hello. Hi, that's me. Kyle Weens, welcome back to the Vergecast. Hey, thanks for having me back. So there's a lot of right to repair stuff to talk about. But first, let's just kind of catch up on where we are. And it seems like this bill that was just signed into California law is like if you if you were to pick a moment that you won at right to repair, it feels like this would not be a bad one to choose. Is that is that fair to say? This is far and away the most broad sweeping bill that we've had. And, and the, the retroactivity uh, is helpful. Uh, the, the broad applicability to a variety of products. California had an existing law that we modified. I don't know most people know this, but California has this law called the Beverly Song Warranty Act. That's the best consumer protection law in the world, really. The lemon law, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the lemon law. And it says that you have to be able to get your product service for seven years, which is longer than even Europe and other places. So the right to repair law kind of modifies and improves that lemon law. When we, when we think about the lemon law, most people think of this as like the thing that protects you from buying a shitty used car, though, right? People don't know that it has anything to do with their other electronics. Right. But so like in California, Apple will repair products for seven years. They don't do that anywhere else in the world. So if you have a six-year-old MacBook and you walk into an Apple store in New York City, they won't work on it. But if you go into the Apple store in LA, they will. That's wild. I, I genuinely did not know that. Apple has, they have what they call vintage and obsolete, and it's between five and seven years. And at five years, they cut the world off except California, and then at seven years, they cut California off. Wow. And I think that goes back to just the broader question, like, how long should things last? When we talk about right to repair, you know, you're buying a new thing, or The Verge is recommending a product. Well, cool. I'm going to buy it. How long am I going to use those new AirPods for? 
Well, that's actually the thing I was going to ask, because you were involved in this bill from the beginning, as far as I understand, right? Like you, you were an active participant in crafting this legislation. That's one of the things you have to figure out, right? What is a reasonable amount of time to expect a gadget to work? Absolutely. Seven years seems to be the magic number. Why seven years? Well, seven years is the default that we'd like to do. Now, I should mention California's law, the, the right to repair law, is 2021 devices and forward. But that 2021 is kind of a one-time date. So the right to repair law over time will get better and better. The kind of compromise we negotiated with Apple was 2021, which is iPhone 12 and forward. So why seven years though? Is that like, why not, why not 10 or five? Like what, what was it about seven years? Seven years was in the, in the lemon law historically. So that's kind of, and it, it, you know, tailored toward, you know, electronics-y type products. I don't think seven years is long enough. I think that's a good place to start, but like I have a 2012 MacBook Pro that still works just fine. So we're going in 11 years on that one. I think we should be talking 15 plus years, but you got to start somewhere. So the existing California law was, it requires the manufacturers to keep the parts around. It requires them to maybe repair them for you if you go get to the repair. You still had to pay them for that repair, though. And they didn't necessarily, like Apple didn't necessarily have any obligation to send parts to you. To that you could repair it yourself, right? Right. Yeah, that's that's the big difference. The big change that we're, we're doing with these right to repair bills is it says manufacturers have to make the same parts, tools, and information available to consumers and independent repair shops that they have in the Apple store. So walk me through that, though, because there's a there's a letter of that law and there's a spirit of that law. And I feel like the spirit of that law is pretty straightforward, right? There are a bunch of tools. There are ways to make these things more fixable. I should have the same access that somebody at Apple does. The letter of that law says that Apple can do to Sean what it did do to Sean, which is ship him like 9,000 pounds worth of equipment in a bunch of Pelican cases and say, here you go, jackass, you figure it out. And that's like... That's better than nothing. There are tools that exist that you can get access to that you can fix stuff. But there's so much gray between the tools exist and you can have them to like, it is easy and doable for a regular human to fix things. Do we just have to be comfortable in that gray space for a while here? Let's step back and say, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to have a robust repair marketplace where products get fixed, where they last a long time, where you have local repair shops in their neighborhoods that can fix everything that all the gadgets in our lives, uh, where, you know, maybe we used to have TV repair shops in our neighborhoods. We don't anymore. Maybe those could come back. So that's what we're trying to get at. And then with legislation, you try to approximate, you know, pointed fixes to try to nudge the world back in that direction. And then the companies can decide if they want to wholeheartedly embrace that and really work with you to try to address the systemic causes that have resulted in the kind of the repair system breaking down, or they can engage in you know, this sort of compliance with a maximal amount of resistance, which is, has been Apple's approach so far. Yes. Right to repair shenanigans. Yeah. I, I call it malicious compliance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you think like California has just put every manufacturer on notice for, for all kinds of electronics, not just like laptops and tablets and phones, but like anything over a certain value, right? Anything over 50 bucks. Are you expecting in general an explosion in parts availability for these things? Or do you think there's going to be an explosion in people attempting to sue companies for not making those parts available? That's a good question. I would say, you know, we're, we're helping some companies, but I'm kind of shocked at the silence that we're seeing from the middle market from most companies. I mean, obviously you've got, you know, Samsung and Apple and Logitech and some of these companies out front that, that are paying attention, but the vast majority, I mean, I mean, there's, there's thousands of these companies and I haven't, I've only seen a handful of parts program announcements. So I think, I think companies are behind the eight ball and, and need to get on it. 
you got till January 1. How much of this are you trying to do? Like, there's a version of this where you could be sitting here thinking, like, I just want a gigantic business opportunity <laughs> for iFixit. I'm going to corner the market on human usable repair tools. And now that these things are available in more places, like, I'm going to be a billionaire. My sense would be this is probably too big for iFixit to try and monopolize. But, like, are you sitting at this, looking at this as a huge business opportunity for you? Well, the debate when we were working at Rage Repair was like, are we going to pass laws that put iFixit out of business? Because the idea is the companies need to provide parts, tools, and information on on their site. Like, that's what iFixit does. That's how we've always, right? We, right. we built an alternative ecosystem for Apple products. You can go and get all that from iFixit. Now, in addition to the iFixit service manual, you can get Apple and you can get a, a service manual for the iPhone. So that, I think that's pretty cool. And just so I understand, Apple partnering with iFixit to sell stuff is not good enough under this law is that like Apple has to offer it itself. Is that right? It would be, it would be, I mean, that's how, that's how Samsung and others are complying. I mean, they, they have to provide a link to where to go to get it. So if you, if you provide okay. it on iFixit, that would meet the need. Some companies like uh, Samsung is purely going through us. Uh, others like Microsoft is selling parts directly, which is great. I think that's fantastic. That's what we've been asking for all along. So it's really cool to see it starting to happen. Have you gotten an influx of, of people asking you about this? I mean, you've already got Google and Samsung and Valve, like very publicly. We've written about it. Other publications have written. This is where you go to get your parts for these devices. Are other manufacturers contacting you and saying, yes, do that for me too? We have some companies that we're working with, absolutely, and and we're we're ready to go to, to help more. But like I said, I'm, I'm surprised we're not hearing from more. You know, like pick a random company like like Bose, right? They they make a lot of products. They're over ear headphones that are sold in every airport, and these batteries wear out after a couple of years. And Bose has no strategy. We're not talking to them. They don't have parts available for the their quiet comfort headphones. I don't. I mean, they have to do something. And, and I would say that's the default for almost all companies. So it's, it's more the exception than the rule that they're talking to us and working with us. I'm curious what you've heard from the companies you've been negotiating with us on this front, because I think about even a company like Apple is probably an easy one to think about, right? Because I think making a MacBook more repairable, pretty straightforward, like not easy, but doable. Like we've, we know what a repairable laptop looks like, one where you can open it up and put in a new battery, right? Like we know what that looks like. Phone, less so, but still sort of doable. But like you mentioned AirPods. And I'm trying to imagine if I'm Apple, how I literally how I make that tiny little integrated thing with all the stuff in it in a way that complies with these laws. What have you heard from the folks who are trying to do these, especially like, you know, smaller wearable things like are, are folks throwing at you saying we can't do the thing that you're asking us to do? No, it's totally doable. I've, I've talked with, I mean, so for the, the AirPods, I would point to the Samsung Galaxy Buds, which I think the Verge scored basically identically to the AirPods and said the sound quality is just as good. So the, the Galaxy Buds, you can pop open and swap out the battery easy. And, and they're like 25 bucks for a set of new batteries for them. It's great. Uh, we sell them. You can get them elsewhere. You just pop them open. There's a gasket and that's how they all should be. So no, I don't, I don't really accept uh, that you can't make these things fixable. It's just a matter of effort. When we got the Apple Watch, we uh, we partnered with a watchmaker, a local watchmaker, and we took it apart with him. And, and he was just aghast. He's like, are you kidding me? This is the most shittily designed product I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the architecture hasn't changed. He's like, let's let's take apart a Rolex and let's look at how you really do this. And and you can seal these things. You can have gaskets and, and the form factor is, is similar. The sizes are similar. These are very small components, but they can be repairable. So there are shortcuts that we take in mass manufacturing these things, but there are paths. So when we, we do a lot of consulting with manufacturers where we, we, you know, give them feedback and we also kind of teach them design for repairability practices. And 
our point is consistently like we can innovate our way into the future here. We can come up with new innovative technologies that make repairing products at, at scale at the cost that we need to hit possible. How concerned are you with easily repairable versus, you know, repairable with a lot of knowledge and the parts available? Because I just watched an amazing, amazing teardown uh, by iFixit of the MetaQuest 3. And I watched that teardown and I said, wow, that is a tremendous number of screws, 50 screws to get to the battery, all these layers of circuit boards, ribbon cables, all this stuff. I looked at that video and I was of two minds about it. One, oh my God, there's so many layers. Do there really need to be that many layers, that many <laughs> screws? And But the other side of my mind was every one of those steps seems easy. It's just a lot of them. I could do that myself at home. No problem. Yeah. As long as there's documentation, you can do it. Uh, we just published our repair manual for the new Pixel Fold. It's in depth. It's it's like 126 steps to get to the battery. Uh, so I'm not going to recommend that be the first electronics repair you ever try. It's kind of bordering on the edge of possible. I, I think it is possible we're selling a repair kit for it, but I don't expect very many people to take us up on it. You get that with kind of new technologies where you know, there's a lot of complexity. We've been ta we've taken apart pretty much every VR headset since the Oculus, just because I'm fascinated by the category. Clearly, it's some element of the future, uh, and, and the mechanical design is really interesting, and the sensors, and over time, you end up with consolidation. You simplify things down. I mean, the, the Apple Watch you know system on, on chip is they took all the discrete ICs, and they just bundle them together into one silicon package and there is no more visible complexity for a fixer anymore. So you'll get there with the optics on these on these VR headsets over time. Yeah, I think one interesting example of that tension that you're describing Sean is is I think like you you look at the new surface stuff from Microsoft versus like the Framework 13, right? And the the Framework stuff, Sean, which I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on because you spend a lot of time with these things is, I mean, it is designed for a regular person to take it apart and put it together, right? Like that is the point. You should be able to unscrew a thing, pull a thing out, put it back in, screw it back in, and you're done. Like that is, that yeah. is a sort of end state of right to repair that I think is really interesting. The Surface stuff is designed sort of deliberately to be harder to do than that. They're trying to find a middle ground between like, you can still get at it, but it's not going to be as simple, which gives us certain affordances that we can have in design and materials and all that stuff. Is it good that we have both of those approaches? Should we all aspire for every gadget to be like the framework where I can just yank a thing out and put another thing back in? Like, where do you feel like we should land here? From my perspective, what the companies tend to argue is they tend to argue we get better component density when we don't make things upgradable, modular, repairable. Uh, and I do think there's, there's, there's definitely um, a, a gap between something that's simply repairable versus consumer upgradable, like a framework product where everything is its own little module. And you can put them in because there's been many, many, many laptops that have had modular parts technically in them, but making them end user, I, pull a piece out, I stick another piece in exactly where that went within, you know, two minutes flat, and I have a new GPU. That's definitely something new and different. And, and, and frameworks should be applauded for that. Um, but to your question, to your question, like, that density is less with a framework than it is with a surface, they cram a little bit more into a tighter space in the surface. And I don't think that is enough justification from my perspective. I want the device that is upgradable year after year and modular and eminently repairable, but I can see why they come at it from that perspective. And I can see why they might be angry that the laws say, well, do we have to redesign our products and think how we're doing our products differently in order to meet the goals of this law? 
I'd love to hear what Kyle has to say about that. <laughs> well, I would note the right to repair laws in the U.S. don't address design at all. So the companies can continue to design products however they, they are. It just says, if you have a repair network for your products, you have to make that competitive. So it's really angling on that competition. You can't have a repair monopoly on your product is what the California and these other laws are, are tackling. In Europe, they're more interested in, in mandating device design and uh, banning lightning ports, uh, which you know, we could argue about that, but they did it. It was effective. Yep. It worked. Here we are. Uh, I've got a USB-C port on my iPhone. That's cool. And they're going to do the same thing with removable batteries on smartphones. They're going to mandate removable batteries again. If you're going to pick a place to draw a line, I think consumables are a pretty good place to draw a line. They're not saying you can upgrade the RAM in your smartphone. They're just saying the smartphone can't stop working when the, you know, the most fragile uh, chemically wearing component inside it fails, which seems like a good, good initial line to draw. Was it intentional to not think about design? Because I was, I was thinking about, Sean, as you were talking, the difference between this and the USB-C thing, where they are like, that is a proactive decision. They're like, this is what your thing is going to do. And the EU is pushing on a lot of that, right? Even some of the stuff they're doing with messaging apps, like mandating that they be interoperable, like they are telling people what their products will do and how they will work. And so far in the US, the right to repair stuff has not done that. Like, it just seems like it's it's truly poking a bear if you start to tell these companies what they have to do. And it's it's a minor miracle the EU got as far as it did. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that we got so much fight against the right to repair laws as they are, because they're really pretty darn minor. I mean, you saw what Apple had to do to comply. Like, it's not it's not a big tweak. It's just a subtle tweak. Now, they've, they've fought against us for over 10 years uh, just on a subtle tweak. So we we decided to uh, focus on on what was achievable. We talk about, in politics, we talk about the Overton window, which which is the window of, of what po politicians can like plausibly do. Politician can't go out and, you know, do something totally crazy that society would never put up with. Debatable. We elect them and then they do the things that are kind of within the scope of what is reasonable. Right. Uh, so we picked something that was within the scope of, of something that was pretty reasonable. It was really important to us to have bipartisan legislation. Uh, it passed almost unanimously in California and, you know, overwhelmingly in, in New York and Minnesota and other places. So we, we've been focused on on bipartisan legislation that, that can be consensus-based, which means that there will be uh, laws that will stand the test of time. They won't be easy to overturn. Yeah, I remember you and I talked a bunch of years ago about kind of the you were in the like we haven't yet won one but we're about to win one phase of the right to repair fight that there had been a bunch of almosts a bunch of near misses and you're like it is only a matter of time until we tip over this line and and your thought was we really just need one or two we don't have to get all 50 states and the federal government to pass a right to repair bill we need a couple of significant ones to make it so hard for companies to make a million different versions of their gadgets that they're all just going to play ball yeah. And it's going to work. Absolutely. With the California law, we're, we're up to 20% of the U.S. population has passed the right to repair law. I've heard for many years, you know, as California goes, so goes the nation. But then on, on the other side of this call, you're telling me that an Apple laptop is handled differently for repairs in California as it is in New York. Well, be, because that that is a business practice and the, the, they were able to kind of drive drive a wedge there. Uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, when, when it comes to things like you have to make the repair manual online to sell your product in California, whether they're going to like GOIP locate people and only make the repair manuals available in California. No, they're doing it nationwide. Uh, and, and I think you'll you'll continue to see that. And I would assume part of it is like, honestly, I would not put it out of the realm of possibility that Apple would GOIP fence the accent. <laughs> like, I really wouldn't. But 
the good news of it is that stuff now exists in the world for regular. Like you, you don't have to hack Apple servers to get that stuff. It just once it's out there, it's going to be out there, right? And as soon as the version of that manual and the existence of those parts is seen by some portion of the broader internet, it becomes too big to hide in a way that I think works for the movement that you're talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, getting this information out there, having Samsung say, this is how you open the phone. I mean, it also, by the way, helps guide regulators because when <laughs> when I go to them and say, hey, it's hard to open the iPad, they're like, okay, sure, Kyle. Uh, but then when when we've got Apple service manual to say, which they haven't posted for the iPad yet, by the way, but that, to show like, hey, the battery is glued in and this is the process and it's this crazy hard, that makes it much easier for regulators, for academics. One of the big challenges, I think, in regulation and, and honestly, product reviews across electronics is, is who's out there taking these things apart? Like, when's the last time you guys took something apart while you were reviewing it? Uh, and that's not a criticism. It's just, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It's expensive. You have to get a lot of products. I mean, we spent uh, over $10,000 on iPhone 15s on launch day just to get enough of them so we could pull them apart and give you guys some kind of analysis of like, hey, if you swap the screens, the selfie camera stops working. No one would have known that if we hadn't tested it. I'm, I'm going to plug here and say I totally did take apart the Steam Deck and the ROG Ally <laughs> for my reviews of those products. But yes, it doesn't happen all the time. No, and we super appreciate it. And Sean, you go more in-depth than just about anybody else in the technosphere, uh, which is really appreciated. We need to see more of that. Sean, can you talk about the Steam Deck, actually? Because I think in the realm of this sort of next phase of more repairable gadgets, I think Valve with the Steam Deck is kind of out ahead of a lot of other companies in the way that it's thinking about how this stuff should work. Is that true? Absolutely. Uh, I flew to Valve's headquarters two years ago in August, and I asked them, hey, are the parts for this going to be replaceable? And like the very first hands-on that Preset had with this thing, this battery in here, it's a small battery. You only get like your two hours of battery life, maybe. This is going to wear out. It's going to go lower and lower battery. You're going to let me replace that, right? And they were like, we have a plan to let you repair this device. We will send you more details when they are ready. Which we have learned to be dubious of over the years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the rug alley. We, we're still waiting to find yeah. out how you repair that one. And then it turned out that you were their partner. iFixit was their partner for the Steam Deck parts. And you could buy... I think literally every part of this. Yeah, and it takes a long time to set these programs up. So while while they were they were showing you off, like we were hammering out the details, the logistics of how we get parts out there. But it's been really important. It's been really successful. It's a it really shows that repair takes an ecosystem. It takes a product that can be repaired. Uh, which maybe is the challenge with some of the foldables right now is they're a little hard to fix, but then it also takes the parts and the tools and the information. You have to have that whole ecosystem come together. Otherwise people, you know, when it breaks, they sort of do the math in their head and they, and they decide to buy a new one. Yeah. Kyle, can you explain a little more about how a partnership like that comes together? Because I suspect whether it's with you or with other repair manufacturers around the country, like a lot of people who make electronics are going to be out there trying to figure out how to strike partnerships like this. So when Valve comes to you and they're like, we want to work with you on some Steam Deck stuff, what happens? Yeah, so there's there's a spectrum. The, the simplest thing is is they come to us and say, hey, we want to fix the thing. We say, cool, set us up with your supply chain, introduce us to your suppliers, we'll buy from them, we'll write the repair manuals, we'll build the store for you. We just kind of take care of everything, which okay. is what we've been doing historically. You know, like we were the largest resource for how to fix Apple products. We have been for 20 years. Uh, we don't work with Apple at all. <laughs> but aside from that, you know, we build the supply chain and we come up with the tools and we build repair kits. So you get a screen and it comes with the tools that you need to do that repair. And that's kind of our happy spot is just let us do everything. But some companies uh, already have the information or like we work with teenage engineering. They've got some really cool audio products. 
And they actually, they wanted to write the repair procedures. So they write the repair guides, they put them on, I fix it. And then they send us the parts. And we're just at that point, we're just an e-commerce company for them. And that's, that's perfectly fine too. So we're pretty flexible. We'll work with companies, however they want. We'll kind of fill in whatever gaps they need, but we're perfectly capable of, of doing everything from soup to nuts. How do you properly size the repair supply chain pipeline for for users who want to buy parts through iFixit? I mean, I know that you haven't always been able to keep all the parts in yeah. stock that I would possibly want for a Steam Deck or, or a Pixel. Or I think last time I checked, you had like two iPhone mini screens in stock <laughs> if I wanted to replace one of those. Like, how do you figure that out? It's hard. Uh, and, and we don't know we, uh, how many of the gizmos are going to sell, uh, how many are going to break. It's really challenging, right? And so you do the best that you can, and then you adapt it over time. And the tighter knit the supply chain is, the better. Um, also, you know, planning out. So, all right, we're going to stop production of this uh, device, and we're going to, you know, make the next version of it. But we have to, at that point, do what's called a last time buy. You have to buy all the parts that you're going to need for the next five or 10 years for the device. And so you're just kind of guessing at that point. So we do the best we can. And when we get it wrong, our community lets us know. That's fair. Yeah, Sean was was lamenting that the Steam Deck stuff has because been sort of intermittently hard to get yeah. over time. We I mean we have tools. So you sign up on the email list and we'll mail you the moment that that the part comes back in. But yeah, that doesn't that doesn't help when your thing is broken and I don't have the part. So what's your sense of kind of what happens most immediately here? It feels like long run we might start to see a change in the way gadgets are made and work. Like your AirPods might come from a fundamentally different manufacturing process, but that's going to take a while because this stuff always takes a while. Right. Maybe more immediately, like the re-rise of the local repair shop, which seems to be very clearly kind of a goal of this. Like, what do you look for as sort of the first metric of success that like this is working, this law is having its intended effect here? Well, the first and the most easiest thing is to get companies to publish all their service information. So that should happen. New York law goes into effect January 1. So at that point, January 2, you should be looking at companies. And if they're not posting their service information, they're out of compliance, right? And that, having that just that basic level of insight into how are these things put together then starts to help. Then we hope to layer on on parts availability and then if the pricing and, you know, kind of consumer awareness follows. Like right now, people don't fix televisions. You have a TV that breaks, just get a new one. There's no reason, like it's, these things are not glued together like AirPods. They're pretty easy to fix. If you have a power supply, go out in a TV, it's crazy to buy a new one. But we have to kind of retrain society that way. Yeah. Sean is going to be like deep in manual deep dive heaven for like the first six months of 2024. It's going to be, he's like a hundred million pages of, of documentation and in Sean's house. It's going to be amazing. I have to ask you about parts pairings. We can't, back when I was could report on Apple, I have an ethical conflict now, so don't report on Apple. But back when I did, I received those two suitcases full of mm -hmm. uh, Pelican suitcases full of Apple repair tools, and I stuck that battery in my iPhone, and then it told me that my battery was not genuine yeah. until I went through this procedure to make it genuine. And I know that companies like iFixit, they're worried that these manufacturers may decide to require that some part be paired with some other part, either digitally requiring some kind of special authentication that might be difficult to get, or physically, where they will only sell you a module that has all these different things on it. Can you really repair a TV if they say, you need to buy the TV mainboard, which has all the components on it for the entire TV, and you're basically buying a whole new TV? Do we want them to, you know, have, buy an entire compute board for a phone? Or can you buy the individual pieces? Yeah, so the question here is one around control. Can a manufacturer dictate where and when devices are repaired? 
And so if you have a chip in the part and a chip in, in the main board, so let's take the display on the on the iPhone, for example, there's a chip in the in the display with a serial number. At the factory, they marry or they pair the serial number in your display to the serial number on your phone. We took two brand new iPhone 15 Pro Max units. We swapped the screens between them and you lose a bunch of functionality. You lose True Tone. You lose the uh, front-facing camera, which seems like an important feature of a phone. <laughs> you lose a lot of these features and you also you know start to get a lot, a lot of warnings. It's pretty easy to build those kind of locks in. So that's why we're kind of raising the red flag and saying, this is a moment in technology where we need to pause, we need to evaluate. What road do we want to go down? Do we want to go down a road where uh, parts are not interchangeable? Right. I mean, for, for the entire history of the electronics industry so far, you have two PCs, you swap the hard drives between them, you can do that. Now we're saying, well, you can't even swap screens between two phones. The entire electronics recycling ecosystem, they don't make money off the commodity. They don't make money off the gold and the silver in these things. They make money because 20% of the devices that they get can be fixed and resold, and that subsidizes the rest of the recycling. So when you insert this poison pill where you say, well, no, actually, you have two broken phones. You can't combine them and make one that works. That's really going to sabotage the economics of the electronics recycling and refurbishment industry. So we need to do something about that. None of the right to repair laws that have passed so far address this. The California law had some language in it that would have done that. And in, in a compromise to get Apple to support the legislation that was removed. So uh, stay tuned for next year, I think. I think I think <laughs> we're going to need to do this. We, we cannot stop with right to repair legislation. We need to keep going. And, and that's the conversation we're having with all the states about next year's laws. What does keep going look like? I think it's very easy to see right to repair as kind of a binary thing. Either you're allowed to do it or you're not. But what you're presenting is a much sort of longer series of steps. Like, what is the step after this? Yeah, so we need to get to a point where repair is practiced regularly on the ground, where the TV is not only is fixable, you can get parts, but the people are and the repair shops start to come back. And so we, we can't really stop working on this. We, we have momentum behind us, but we can't stop until we actually see the, the solutions start having an effect on the material world. Someone very wise once told me, the earth doesn't care about anything that we say. It only ha cares about when you actually take a shovel and you, you know, stick it in the ground and you start doing things. So we need to get right to repair from this discussion, this intellectual discussion to like practically something that impacts how long things last. Are there key states that support parts pairing and other important missing elements from the current right to repair laws where you think you've got the momentum to make it happen there? Yeah, so right to repair bills were introduced in 30 states this year. Uh, so I'm anticipating, and the, like, Minnesota is still considering it, the hope would be to make substantial progress in many of those. It's not just just core electronics. We need to solve this for e-bikes. We need to solve this for, for appliances, for power equipment. Um, there's a broad spectrum of other products that, that need to be covered. So I would, I would expect, I mean, like Washington is a state where the bill got really close. Microsoft actually endorsed Washington's right to repair bill, and then Apple killed it. So I think you're going to see states where they got really close in Oregon. They were just sure one vote. I think there's many states that are going to, you're going to see move quickly at the beginning of next year. The, the legislative season, by the way, you know, you think about in the tech world, we have CES right after CES. That's when all the legislators get to work. And there's like a two, three month kind of frenzy of activity where between February, March, April, you're going to see a lot of action. So you're, you're like California celebratory period 
was very short. Very short. I, I mean, I could tell you all, all the, the coalition is very busy, very engaged. There's a, there's an active coalition in each state and you can go, if you want, check out your state, you can go to oregon.repair.org and, and get involved. There's wonderful. I mean, this really is a grassroots movement where like I couldn't even tell you where it's going to happen next. Like what's going to happen in Pennsylvania? I don't know. There's a great community there that might, might push forward. At the risk of basically asking you to jinx yourself, does this feel unstoppable at this point? Like, have we have we tipped into <laughs> this is going to win? It's just a matter of time. We're we're making very good progress. I mean, we've moved beyond this. The sky will fall if this passes stage. There was so long. I mean, Apple was wandering around Sacramento telling legislators, "Hey, if people can open their iPhone, they'll puncture the battery and set it on fire." And they told legislators in Nebraska that if they passed right to repair, it would turn Nebraska into a mecca for hackers. And and I think those sort of like sky will fall kind of claims have have clearly been proven wrong. It's the same fight we're having about the App Store. If you're allowed to do anything, yeah, you will give all of your money to a stranger and also burn your house down. Right. Like that's These are the rules. Which, by the way, the App Store has banned apps that report battery status. <laughs> so Apple's the only the, the only one that can tell you how many cycles are on your battery. Interesting. So, okay, so we're past that phase. Are there are there other sort of obvious roadblocks you're seeing that you still have to get past? So parts pairing is a large one. And then I think you have to look at implementation timeframe, you know, going back to 2021, is that far enough back? Some challenges around internet access. Should you be able to fix things if you don't have access to the internet? You know, if you look at who uses iFixit, we are uh, per capita much more heavily used in rural areas than in, than in urban areas, right? Farther from access to, to retail locations. I, you know, the farther north in Canada you go, the more people rely on, on iFixit. And so I think making sure that that repair is robust and repeatable and, and that the software diagnostic tools are available to everyone is really important. Um, it, it impacts far more products than you would think. Like you think about like an outboard engine on a boat. Traditionally, you've been able to fix that without software. Now it's all software controlled. And you talk to fishermen and they're like, yeah, I can't fix my engine anymore. Five years ago, I could, but I can't fix the one now because I don't have the software. And and that's increasingly the case across everything of the software and the technology. It's making these products better in some ways, but they're not following up with access to the, the diagnostic tooling that we need. Have, have you seen any of this? I mean, when we're talking about phones, I mean, it's, it's very hard in the United States. There's, there's Apple and there's Samsung is are predominant, uh, predominantly the market share of all the phones. Most people buy from them. But when it comes to like outboard motor for your boat, do you see any kind of pushback in that realm where consumers, uh, the people buying those things say, we're going to buy lower tech products instead of higher tech products so that we have the ability to repair them on their own. Are there manufacturers, you know, who are intentionally developing more repairable lower tech devices for those those realms? You can see this in the farm equipment industry. Uh, if if you take a tractor from 1995, its its value is continuing to go up. It's not going down. The the kind of pre computer age of farm equipment is in is in high demand, and and you can you can see the economics playing out very clearly. Now, I think it's interesting that you haven't seen manufacturers take advantage of it. So I haven't seen a manufacturer like Kubota go out there and say, well, we're going to make a lower tech tractor that's easier to work on and beat John Deere at their own game. It seems like everyone is still in the cult of technology, the cult of the new, which is, which is really frustrating because if one of them would break out, I mean, you see the success that framework is having. I think there's there's a real opportunity for for some of these companies to really differentiate themselves from the the Goliaths. I think that's right. And it also people root for framework in a really interesting way. Like th there is this sense that companies like Framework are on this morally right side of history and I hear people in tech 
who would never buy a framework laptop and don't even care about laptops who are like, boy, I hope that company succeeds because it's like they, they, their sense is everything is better if we prove that that can work. It's proposing a different trajectory than what seemed was inevitable. What is what is the single part of a gadget that you are like most excited for everybody to make repairable? Like, what do you if if everybody just opens up one thing? Is it screens? Is it batteries? It's, it's batteries. A hundred percent is batteries across everything. A battery is a consumable. Having a, a battery glued into a device is like buying a car with tires that are welded on. It's insanity. Uh, I go to Home Depot and they're like, hey, get the new smoke detector with a 10-year battery that you never have to change. You just throw the smoke detector away after 10 years. The smoke detector has a radioactive isotope at the center of this thing. We don't want to be throwing these away, right? Like, why in the world would we want everything in the world to have this, this chemical pouch inside it that wears out after three years? It's absolute insanity. We have to move away from glued in integrated batteries and everything until, I mean, if, if we get to a point where we have some magical new battery technology that lasts for 50 years, okay, cool. We can glue batteries in at that point, but we're, we're not there yet. Yeah. I like thinking of batteries as a consumable and an otherwise very long lasting thing is actually, I think, a really useful frame for how we talk about technology. Yeah. Let's take your refrigerator that was going to last for 30 years and make it last for two and see how happy you are. <laughs> that's, that's the world. It just drives me insane. And I've been watching the trend. And by the way, there are underpinning reasons. Like there are UL standards that have to change. It's not completely the manufacturer's fault. We're in kind of the system that has accidentally been designed that really pushes us in the direction of proprietary battery packs. Even if you do make an interchangeable battery, like what standard is there for uh, interchangeable lithium? pouch cells, right? There isn't one. There, what, what size? If I'm like, I'm a good cell phone manufacturer, I'm going to use the standard battery size. What is that? And that's a problem that needs to be addressed at an industry level to then enable manufacturers to innovate around interchangeable interoperable batteries. I like it. All right. We should let you go. Sean, Kyle, thank you both so much. And Kyle, you know, congratulations on your gigantic victory and your impending billionaire status <laughs> as the CEO of iFixit. This is a win, I think, for all consumers, everyone who's been agitating for this for so long. I mean, we owe so much to Reddit and all of the enthusiastic folks who've written and called their, their representatives over the years. Let's not take off the gas now. We're, we, we got them on the ropes, but we need to keep pushing this until we really solidify and build a solid foundation uh, that the next wave of technology is built on. Love it. Awesome. Thank you both. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks. All right. We got to take one more break, and then we're going to get to the Vergecast hotline. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. 
If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Welcome back. Let's do a question from the Vergecast hotline, as we do every week. For this one, Nathan Edwards is here. Hi, Nathan. Hello. Welcome to the Vergecast. First time. This is very exciting. Thank you. Long time listener, first time uh, participant. <laughs> as a reminder, before we get into it, the hotline number is 866-VERGE-11. Call and ask us all your questions. You can also email vergecast at theverge.com if you'd rather not call. We've gotten really good questions the last several weeks. So thank you to everyone who's been calling and emailing. This one, we got a bunch of like charging questions this week. I guess it's like new gadget time. So everybody has lots of charging questions, but this one was my favorite. And the reason we have brought you in Nathan is because this is right up your alley. Uh, let's just play the question first. It comes from Kyle. Hi, this is Kyle from Nova Scotia, Canada. I was wondering if there have been any updates on the T2 wireless charging standard, the MagSafe sort of looking magnet thing from a while back. You guys wrote about how the new iPhone is kind of supporting it, but it didn't appear on the Pixel 8. So that's it for major flagships for now. When will we see an Android with Qi 2? I want my hacky magnet accessories and car chargers. I've been listening for ages. Love the show. Thanks. Okay. I love this question because it is so confused and so vague about what Qi 2 is and when it's coming, which is the exact correct response as far as I can tell to what is going on with Qi 2. So Nathan, just start quickly at the very beginning. Catch me up. What is Qi 2 and why do we care? Okay, so Qi 2 is the sequel to Qi, which is the wireless charging standard that is in pretty much every phone. Almost everything that charges wirelessly right now, except for smartwatches, is Qi. Regular Qi, no magnets, including the iPhone. The iPhone also has MagSafe, which has a ring of magnets to make sure that the charger and the charging coil aligns with the receiver coil. Because uh, wireless charging is very finicky. If you're off by a couple millimeters, that takes more power, it's less efficient, Is you're not going to get a good lock. The thing the iPhone's always really good at is like you get sort of close and then it just like sort of snaps into position. That's MagSafe. Everything else is Qi. Yes. Okay. MagSafe phones will work with Qi. And in fact, there's a lot of magnetic Qi accessories that are not MagSafe certified, but they've got the Qi charger and they've got the ring of magnets and they'll stick to the back of a MagSafe phone and charge it just fine. Okay. That's Qi 1. Doesn't include the magnets. Qi 2 is basically generic MagSafe. It's over-the-counter MagSafe. <laughs> okay. Basically, it is wireless charger with a ring of magnets around it. Apple contributed a bunch to the new standard. It's run by the Wireless Power Consortium, which uh, is the same group that administers the Qi standard. And basically, it's got a ring of magnets. So it should be intercompatible with MagSafe to some degree in the sense that Apple doesn't have to do anything. As far as I know, they don't have to do anything to make Qi 2 work hardware-wise because the magnets, although they're not exactly the same configuration, apparently, they'll work just fine. 
Okay. So it's something that's already on Apple. It's not officially on the new iPhones because it's not certified yet. This is weird, right? So like, I remember when the, when the iPhone 15 came out a few weeks ago, Qi2 came up. It was like... Yes, briefly. Yeah, sort of mentioned in passing. And we tried to figure out like, is this the first official Qi2 phone? And the answer is like, kind of? It probably will be the first official Qi2 phone. Okay. So it said, the specs said future Qi2 support. And I reached out to the Wireless Power Consortium and I said, hey, what's up with Qi2? Like, is the standard complete? Is it certified? Do we have devices ready to go? Because we've had Qi2 chargers already have been announced. Okay. And they told me at the time, which was like mid-September when the iPhones launched, they said they hadn't certified any Qi2 devices yet because they were waiting for the test equipment. I see. To be able to certify them, they need to be able to test them and so forth. That stuff wasn't set up yet. And I pinged him again earlier this week, and he basically told me, hold tight. Okay. So <laughs> I am expecting that there will be Qi2 chargers and probably Qi2 enabled on the iPhone's this month, next month, maybe. Okay. As for the actual question, which is when will there be Android phones with Qi2? I don't know. Nobody knows. The assumption would be that next year would be the answer to that, right? There's no good reason not to have it everywhere, right? This is the new standard. Everyone has been supporting Qi for a while. It feels like, is there an obvious reason we wouldn't see a flood of Android phones start to support this over the next year or so? I would say development pipelines. Okay. Like, I don't know. Qi2 was officially announced, mentioned at the beginning of 2023, if people have had time to put the magnets into the design and manufacturing and stuff, I would say probably spring is the earliest we'd see something. And it also, like, I agree, there's no reason not to put it in there because there's a bunch of magnetic chargers out there already. The generic magnetic Qi chargers you have now, they will charge an Android phone actually faster than they'll charge an iPhone. What? Yes, they will. This is why we get questions about charging, because charging doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It's silly. So if you have an official MagSafe certified charger, it's got a little chip in it that tells the iPhone that it's real. And the iPhone will charge at 15 watts. Anything else has just a regular Qi charger and the iPhone will charge at 7.5 watts. And that's an Apple thing. Because if you take an Android phone and just sort of hold it to the charger or use one of the third-party cases that gives you a little ring of magnets in the right spot, it, it can get 10 or 15. Whatever it normally supports with wireless charging, it can support through that. So you'll get companies that'll be like, hey, this is a 15-watt MagSafe charger. It's a 15-watt charger, and it's MagSafe compatible, but it will certainly not, unless it's certified by Apple, it actually won't do that on an iPhone. It's like 15 watts and MagSafe, and or. Right, but not simultaneously. <laughs> no, but Qi2, here we come circling back around, Qi2, the big advantage of Qi2 is it will offer magnetic wireless charging at 15 watts on any phone that supports it without having to pay extra money for the Apple certification. Okay. Including, allegedly, iPhones. And the reason this is very exciting, it seems to me, is that if Qi2 is what it is promised, it solves both of the biggest problems of wireless charging all at once, which is the like finicky, I put it down a millimeter off and so it didn't charge problem, which is the single most annoying thing about wireless charging and the fact that wireless charging is much slower. So if I'm getting reliable connection to the charger and 15 watts, suddenly I personally can go from like mostly not telling people to buy wireless chargers for their phones because they're kind of more annoying than they're worth in a lot of cases to this actually becomes like a tenable system, right? Yes, I will say that 15 watts is still slower than wired charging in most cases. 
and both MagSafe and any other wireless charger, there's, you know, it'll it'll charge at the max rate when the phone is really low and it'll drop it down as the phone gets closer to a full charge to save the battery a little bit. I don't know what's going on with the iPhone 14 Pro because it, my battery level is at 88% health after one year. Oof, that's not great. But in general, I don't know what's going on there, but in general, they will only charge, they only hit the peak wireless charging at like, if they're like under 30% or under 50%, they'll taper off. Got it. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I think my guess would be, and this is purely conjecture based on nothing, that like maybe next summer is about the time we'll start to see real Qi devices. Because the, the thing somebody told me a while yeah, ago Qi that has held fairly true. Yeah, sorry, Qi too. Yeah. Uh, the thing somebody told me that has held pretty true is the pipeline from any announcement to devices is 18 months. So it's like from new standard exists to it starts to be lots of places, including like from reputable companies whose products you will actually buy that won't catch fire and come from Amazon with sketchy names is 18 months. And it's not always that it's sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter, but that's a pretty good like rule of thumb, which would mean if, if Chi2 was this January, like summer 2024 is when we might start to see a real run of like devices from big name manufacturers with some of this stuff. And the hope would be that they've been working for this longer than we know, and it could be sooner, but I, I'm not necessarily holding my breath on that stuff. Yeah, I would say that probably summer is the soonest. I would be curious to know who is going to make the first move. Because if, depending on which manufacturer it is, do you want to be the company that basically put MagSafe in your phones? Like admitting Apple was right about something? That's a really good point. On the other hand, now that it's generic and it's not MagSafe, maybe they're all going to do it. You're like, yes, this was a great idea. We told you you should have given it to us or something. <laughs> yeah, true. I don't know. Is it going to be Samsung? Is it going to be nothing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think my guess would be if I'm Samsung, ever since the Note 7, any anything to do with batteries and charging and craziness, I'm going to be just a little, little slow on. Just going to take my sweet time on all things batteries and charging. So like maybe, yeah, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's Google. Maybe Apple just in January is like, it's Qi2 now. Don't worry about it. And that's where we are. But yeah, I think I think it's coming, but it's going to keep being confusing for a while, unfortunately. I mean, and the first phones are going to be Apple or going to be the iPhones that are already here because they don't have to do anything hardware wise. Fair enough. All right. Well, Kyle, I hope that helps. Nathan, thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. All right, that's it for The Vergecast today. Thanks to everybody on the show, and thank you for listening. There's a lot more, as always, from everything we talked about at TheVerge.com. V's full review of the smart glasses is coming later this week. We have a bunch of really good right-to-repair coverage, and we'll put some links to all that in the show notes, but also read TheVerge.com. There's tons of news. Netflix is doing weird stuff. YouTube is doing weird stuff. It's just wild times in the tech news world this fall. If you have thoughts, questions, feelings, or gadgets you want to fix or home improvement ideas for me, you can always email us at vergecast at theverge.com or keep calling the hotline, 866-VERGE-11. We've gotten so many fun ones the last few weeks. I really appreciate it. I think we're going to have to do a full hotline episode pretty soon. So keep all your questions coming. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Eli, Alex, and I will be back on Friday to talk about the new Apple Pencil, Google's homepage redesign tests, Netflix's gaming plans, and all the rest of this week's news. We'll see you then. Rock and roll. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) 
Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.